Hi, I'm Linnea. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm going to have lots of slides because it's kind of my nature to bombard with visuals. Um, we have this little group of people that critiques, you know, we critique ourselves. And my critique for last time was that I tended to fire hose everybody and knock you to the back of the room with a deluge of information. It might happen again, although I've been asked to try and be a little more genteel. I'll do my best. It might not work. <laughs> okay, so um, slide number one. This, I titled this The Inside Out Body of Christ because we've been talking about these various metaphors of what the church is described as in the Bible. And we went through family, marriage, bride, building, um, and I get the privilege of doing the body as a metaphor. Um, next slide. So I'm going to start out with Leonardo da Vinci. Because before he came along, the medieval idea of the way that the body functioned was very external um, and very kind of wooden and boxy. If any of you are familiar with medieval painting, hardly looks like uh, human anatomy works in those ways. And part of the reason is because he didn't understand what was inside. Da Vinci was one of the first people to go ahead and let his curiosity go wild. And he um, actually, next slide. Um, in his investigations of the internal structure of the body was illegal in the beginning. Uh, this is like uh, 1448. He started on uh, dissections and he actually had to employ grave robbers <laughs> and kind of conduct these really sloppy autopsies and uh, dissections. Uh, next. So this is an artist whose curiosity just and his need to know the way that the inside worked um, was so powerful that he was willing to kind of flout the church. Next slide. I just wanted to show you beautiful images. Next slide. Next one. He got so curious about the way that we work inside is that he, um, towards the end of his life, was fascinated with the heart. So he made a wax filling of the heart, then made a wax mold, and then he um, poured glass and made a whole cast that was anatomically correct of the heart. And then he injected um, water filled with seeds to try and understand the vortexes and the flow of blood. I mean, the man's a genius. He had a wandering attention span, by the way. He couldn't stay to, on any project. He finished almost none of his paintings. <laughs> so if any of you feel bad about kind of a wandering curiosity, you're in good company. Uh, another thing about this man is that he was a little paranoid. So curiosity, paranoia, and genius. Nice little bouquet, right? So uh, he would write all of his uh, letters and words backwards because he didn't want anyone to know his secrets. But he was also dyslexic. There's no way you can do that unless you're dyslexic. Okay, next. So um, I went to art school, and I learned a lot about human anatomy to the point where I also did dissections. Um, and I made discoveries about the human body, just how beautiful we are all made to be inside and out. The structures that we contain, just sitting here, you don't even know how amazing the kind of calibrations and the structures of what's happening, if you just breathing, sitting there having thoughts. So I love the ribcage, um, but so here's another slide of that. Next, a little more dynamic. Um, next. So what's really interesting is there are these muscles. I've got some favorite muscles. Um, they're called intercostal muscles. 
And they, there's one sheet on the inside that angles in like this between every rib, and then an exterior sheet that angles the other way. So it's like woven, and it expands and contracts and expands and contracts. It's a very beautiful little sheath. Uh, next. Uh, scapula is amazing. Next. Uh, this muscle in particular um, is called supraspinalis, and it um, basically is this discrete little muscle along the kind of wing of the scapula, and it wraps through the bone and attaches, so its origin is on the medial border of the scapula, and it attaches at the arm right here, top of the tubular up there. Next. Um, and then I really love anterior um, serratus. Um, next slide. This muscle almost feels like its origin is on the first nine ribs of the body, and then its insertion is on the uh, interior medial edge of the scapula, and it's the closest we get to a wing. Very beautiful. But the thing is about these two muscles that are all but invisible, because supraspinalis is covered over by trapezius, and a lot of, not all of anterior serratus is covered, but you know, you've got latissimus dorsi and all that kind of stuff. So, at any rate, these two muscles is so cool as they coordinate to help us do this, along with a whole bunch of other muscles. But these two secret sets of muscles do that. So, next. They look like spaceships, vertebrae. How amazing. Next slide. <laughs> um, then what I love about those individual spaceships is how beautifully crafted they are to interlock. And that's going to be the theme of all of today, is this idea of togetherness, of interlocking in the body of Christ, working together. And um, so the scripture that I'm going to be using is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. So I actually, I'm going to ask someone to look this up for me. You going to do that for me? Thanks. You're looking up 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. Um, okay, next slide. So it's all intended to, to interlock and allow us to have this incredible flexibility and stability at the same time. Next slide. So um, I'm just going to show you how my learning about the body from the inside out actually helps you to comprehend the way that things function are intended to function. And I'm not going to scandalize anyone. I tried to find the best, like the ones that are the least, uh, well, I don't know, for Sunday morning. Next one. <laughs> Next slide. Next slide. Next one. Next slide. This is for me. <laughs> when you have Leonardo da Vinci breathing down your neck, you know, draw more. It's been a long time since I've done figure drawing. Okay. Maybe the next one so we can have the tittering die down. Okay. Here we go. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I did not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body, simply because of its attitude, basically. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, 
I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, there would be, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. Okay. I want to first talk about togetherness, because that actually makes a tremendous amount of sense, given what we've just read. And... I want to submit to you the idea that we were all made, everything that is, all of creation, is a product of togetherness. The Trinity before time, in the abundance of relationship and joy of being together, needed to share, needed to produce more togetherness. And that was more or less the motive of creation, um, let's see. So it's very interesting to think about because if we actually think about Adam in Eden, um, the one thing before Genesis 3, when sin more or less, we opened the gate to it, the one thing before that moment that was not called good was loneliness, isolation. Adam was in the garden. If you think about this, okay? He's in paradise. He has closeness with God. What's wrong? What could go wrong? Um, but what's amazing is that God recognized that something was amiss. Something was not like himself in Adam's condition. And we're made to be like God. That's actually, I mean, you think about children, their genetic makeup is to be like their parents. So something about the situation of Adam alone, even in paradise, wasn't enough. So there's this idea of togetherness that we can't even enjoy paradise, perfection. We can't even enjoy beautiful things. Like think about a sunset or going on an incredible journey or an adventure. And there's something that's diminished when it's just us, you know? Um, so I think that we really need to like put the, in context this craving that the human spirit actually has for unity, that it is reflective of the nature of God. Um, so I think that what's amazing about togetherness, this idea of togetherness, is that it's the most unnecessary necessity of human existence. It's the deepest thumbprint of God. Um, now there's a difference between aloneness and a willingness to have solitude (laughs) 
And I think some of that will become clear as we, I continue to talk. But um, the kind of isolation that Adam felt in, Adam, in Eden is very different than the kind of um, need for solitude that we sometimes experience. So, um, if you think about it as well, apart from a community of fellow believers or, or a family or a kind of like group of individuals, it's very hard for us to even know who we are. I, our identity is difficult to define. Um, if we were all kind of isolated in a cave somewhere individually, how would we know? Um, how would we make discoveries about our inner selves and what the boundaries of our identity are? We also speak identity into each other, and that's pretty vital and something that the body of Christ is supposed to function in. Um, however, prevalent cultural conditions um, really push against togetherness, and we're going to discuss that a little bit more, but um, it's a human craving that a lot of things in the world and a lot of the structures that are in the world um, frustrate. And I think that that's a legitimate thing to be aware of. Um, so I want to talk about, in this idea of togetherness, um, the phrase of fellowship or community is also a synonym for that. Um, the thing is with, like, people have a lot of ideas about community, and then when we hear fellowship, we kind of think of sticky cinnamon rolls and hot coffee and, um, you know, greeting someone once a week that you barely ever see otherwise. And it can be kind of um, diluted in its potency, especially when you consider some of the early examples of true fellowship, specifically in Acts when the church was really starting to form its own identity and try and figure out what the body of Christ was. So maybe a better term for that might be something like um, spiritual friendship, um, like this really strong bond between people where we're, you mutually build each other up and you walk through life together as a body. Um, maybe that'll help some people. Um, so in keeping with this idea of spiritual friendship, like you think about how the gospel actually sends you deeper and deeper into Jesus, deeper and deeper into the nature of God, but he also, the gospel also sends us deeper into each other, into the kinds of friendships that we could never imagine possible outside of Christ. Um, so, I mean, basically concluding from that, you know, which sounds dramatic to say, but uh, to be like Jesus and to be like God is actually to choose togetherness to let go of your own isolation, your own independence, and choose togetherness. So, uh, I think that's a pretty high call. Um, something else that I would like to do is that a lot of times we see the need for togetherness as weakness, and I really want to bless that need that's in all of us. God put it there. And there are right ways to fill it, and there are wrong ways to fill it. And I just really think that we need to honor that part of ourselves. That when you feel these kinds of cravings for um, spiritual friendship, um, ask God how that's to be done. And hopefully some of what I say will help you. Um, 
All right. Another thing that's important is um, you don't want to build friendship. Uh, or, okay, so you think about how moments of crisis, it's normally too late. Like um, When you're drowning, that's when you really appreciate air. So, you know, when you're completely lonely and you've got no one to talk to and you're floundering and no possibility of perspective, no one there to bless you where you're at. Um, there's, God certainly can rescue from that, you from that, but there's a kind of continuity of building up um, a lifestyle that creates stability um, that we're all called to, I think. To, and that happens over and over again in the body where there's these systems that are interlocked. So, you know, part of your kidney can go and there will be other systems that rise up to help prevent crisis. So what I'm trying to say is you work on spiritual friendship and community continually, not just when you're in a state of crisis. It's good work, but it will cost you. And we'll get into that too. So much to get into. All right. Um, <clears throat> uh, where is the other side? Oh, notes. Have to pardon me. I'm a very note kind of person. Um, so a lot of in our world basically pushes against community and the only thing that can really create the real thing is the power of Jesus living amongst us. And there are specific components to that that really helps to be aware of. And um, I think that we really need to recognize that in ourselves, we can't do it. So just give up on that. Quit trying to like have the you know, clench-fisted, can-do attitude about it. You need to really submit to the presence of Christ in all of us and his power to supply us with what we need to do something that is supernatural and really difficult. Okay, very rewarding. Um, so basically, Jesus said, I don't know if you caught that in this whole uh, chunk of scripture we just read, that he is identifying with us as a body of Christ. You think about your body, um, people see my face, and they say, oh, it's Linnea. And they're not misled, it's me. Jesus is basically saying, when people look at the church, I want them to say, oh, that's Jesus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he wants us to be that amazing. <laughs> um, talk about the risk of that. I mean, he's insane. Who would do that? You know, like, think about it. In the Old Testament... God said to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, now please understand, these people were deeply flawed. In fact, I would go to say that some of them were cads. Some of them were pretty bad people. But God placed his love on them, and he said, you can know me by looking at these people. He said to the world, I am the God of Jacob, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac. What? I mean, I could think of some better ambassadors myself. No, not me. I could think of them, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Whoops. Um, so, anyway, what I'm trying to say is God is crazy because he's risking his reputation on us. He's attaching his identity and the way that he is thought of in the world to us, on aggregate and individually. Now, if anyone have 
any one of us have love for Christ, which I'm assuming we do, if any of us have experienced the goodness of his love in this room, then aren't you motivated to speak well of him and to represent him well? I think of the people I love, the words I say about them, how I describe them to the people around me. I want them to be honored. I want them to, I want to create excitement about the people that I love in, in my communications about them. Um, and that's the kernel, that's the seed even of evangelism in the world, is we're doing our business, we're being a body, we're representing something different in the world, and we're doing it earnestly because God has taken a risk on us and he's attaching his good name to us. All right. <clears throat> the other thing about a body is its whole goal is life. Life, 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 life. Flourishing, well-being, wholeness, life. A body that's in health is flexible, strong, vigorous, sleeps well, eats well, all those things. So let's remember that. That's the whole goal of being together. Um, so I'm going to go to the next slide and see what it is. I'm surprised. Oh, so this is the, you know, these are the cells that line the back of your eyes. There's rods and cones. The cones are purple. Next slide. Uh, this is the lining, mucus lining on the interior of your trachea. And those are little cilia, the blue parts. Kind of beautiful. Next. <clears throat> These are, so in your inner ear, there are little hairs that help you keep your balance. That one on the right, that's one of those. <laughs> it looks like sci-fi, right? Next. And <clears throat> there's bone. So what I want to say to you is that there are very varied parts of us, obviously, and the unity that I'm trying to describe and the, and the unity that is prescribed in what I read is quite a feat considering all that I just showed you is they're so diverse, so different from one another. So how is this done? Um, <clears throat> First thing I'd like to say about the body or the body as a metaphor is a body eats. <laughs> now this may seem kind of strange, but I'm going to pull it out anyway. The first thing that happens in unity in a body is we metabolize, you know, we're, we take in the world around you and we are broken, we break down food. So in a way, when we enter into Christ's kingdom, we are broken down. We have to let go of our own identity outside of Christ. We have to die to ourselves. We have to really submit and allow ourselves to be reshaped. And that's what a body does when it takes in nutrition. And I'm not saying like there's some cannibalistic story behind it or like, you know, Jesus is eating people. Um, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is this idea of death to self as primary. That's the gateway. That's how we get in. It's how unity is accomplished. Um, so I think that that's really important to bear in mind when we think about this boggling amount of diversity that occurs. It's only after we've died to ourselves. And I think that's really important. Um, 
and we're all placed in a new environment, basically, where the pH balance is different than the world. The new pH balance is love. The law of love is to rule and reign in the body of Christ. It's very different than what's out there, where envy or competitiveness, I mean, you can go on a whole list. There are lists in the Bible of all the different kind of acidic pH balances that are in the world. Um, I'm not saying that the whole body is alkaline, but generally in alkaline environments, cancer can't grow and there can't be illness, so that's interesting. Anyway, in love, very few of those things can grow. I can, yeah. Um, So we have to learn new behaviors as well in this new body. So not only are we part of a new environment, but we ourselves have to start cooperating with it and learning new functions. So, you know, you can imagine that you eat a cupcake and eventually some of the nutrition from that is completely changed and becomes bone marrow. Its function is obviously different now than it was as a cupcake. <laughs> so what I, this sounds very weird, but what I'm trying to say to you is that we have different functions in the body, right? So maybe, you know, you have no cause to choose gentleness if you're out in the world and you're not... Um, you know, you're a headhunter and your job is to be ruthless. And when you're in the body of Christ, suddenly you are brought into whole new behaviors. And sometimes they feel really unnatural in the beginning. And you have to just keep submitting and keep learning. And um, <clears throat> But what's good news about this, some of these new behaviors are, there's lots of good news about this, but some of these new behaviors are forgiveness and honor, self-sacrifice, faithfulness, patience, kindness, fruit of the Spirit, basically. Um, But what's helpful about this whole situation that sounds like a pretty daunting challenge is that we have DNA in every one of us. I mean, we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God thoroughly and also dwells in us thoroughly. So these things that seem daunting, ask the Holy Spirit. How do I do this? Right now, I feel completely perplexed about how to be forgiving. How do, how do, I, how do I do that? Um, and we're not at a loss, is what I'm trying to say. We contain the complete blueprint. Holy Spirit is in us, of the, of the entire body. And he'll, he'll teach us how to cooperate. Um, a really key thing that I'm going to go into a little bit in depth, though, is that in kind of reading that chunk that I just read, what was described to us were different temptations within the body as to how to relate. And I'm going to boil down those temptations to some psychological terms that's... um, I know it's a bit risky to kind of like pull in psychology too much, um, but I think there are some very true things that we can learn from the science of psychology that um, are described here and kind of motion towards. So we have to learn, and one of the words is interdependence. And I don't think that's a bit of a, it's not much of a stretch to say that we should learn that based off of what we read in 1 Corinthians. However, the temptations that were described there were independence and codependence. So, you know, independence being, well, I don't, I don't need you. I function fine with what I've got. Or codependence being, I want to be you. (laughs) I envy you. I must be you. You know? Um, So what I'm going to do 
is I'm just, I just wrote down a few things, like the salient points of these three categories, or two of them are temptations, and one of them is the vision, the great goal of how we want to be with each other. Um, so here we go. I would first say that there are certain, like, if you just want a symbol uh, mathematically of the way that I like that idea of these three things, then I would say um, codependence is zero plus zero equals zero. Independence is one plus one equals two. And interdependence is one plus one equals 11, or 111, or 1,011. can keep going. Um, <clears throat> so... I'm going to just go through codependence and independence first, and then we'll go from there at interdependence. So codependence is looking to others for salvation and validation, acceptance, and safety. Independence is looking only to yourself for salvation, happiness, validation, satisfaction. Codependence feels ultimate responsibility and consequent emotional imprisonment to the well-being of others i.e. is looking to be the salvation of someone else or to be saved. Um, <clears throat> and I'm using the word saved intentionally because I'll get into that. Um, so independence feels ultimate responsibility only for your own emotional state and well-being. Codependence blames others for their own pain and over-identifies with their wounding. In other words, they refuse to forgive, and it lies at the root of their sense of victimization. Um, independence holds only themselves responsible for emotional wounding and look to themselves only for healing and refuse victimization, but they often also refuse forgiveness. Um, codependence has a lack of boundaries or clear identity. Independence often has a clear sense of identity, but not of others, respecting other people. Um, in codependence, that lack of boundary can stem from a refusal to accept identity, good identity from God, and therefore is unable to appreciate, but instead is compelled to appropriate. Independence has a clear sense of self, it accepts identity, but is often unaware of its effect on others, that all others also have good identities. Codependence lacks identity, um, but they don't really, so they don't really know themselves sometimes, or we don't, I mean, I don't want to say they, I think all of us move in and out of these temptations, because we're human, this happens. So there's grace for all of that. I'm not, you know, I've been all of these things. <laughs> um, they don't really, we don't really know ourselves when we're in codependent moments. Um, so communication and real friendship becomes very difficult, if not impossible, if you don't know who you are. Um, independence. So the independent spirit has no compelling motive to communicate or form strong bonds. Instead, strong bonds are sometimes seen as a threat to freedom. So codependence is based off fearfulness. Independence can often lead to pride. It's often based on pride. So 
I mean, I think we can see, based on what we know and experience of Christ, that these two temptations lead, can lead to really negative results and kind of rejecting your place in, in the body of Christ or not being able to kind of cooperate with everything. Instead, you know, be an ear that's demanding to be the eye or be a foot that refuses the eyelashes, which no one should refuse the eyelashes, right? Okay, interdependence. This is good math. One plus one equals 11. Sounds about right to me. So I'm not a math major. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so here is a breakdown of what interdependence looks like. In, the interdependent person looks to Christ for salvation and to others for help to keep, uh, to keep Christ in full view. So both by giving and receiving, sowing and reaping, we're able to keep Christ in view for each other. So... Um, my little brother is, uh, he has these mo many moments, actually, of incredible wisdom. But, you know, when he's your little brother, you're kind of like, wow. Um, so we were talking about sowing and reaping one day, and he was like, yeah, it's so much more than, like, we tend to think it's, like, about our own spiritual life. You know, sow into your own spiritual life, and you'll reap and all that stuff. But he's like, no, it's actually we sow and reap into each other's faith as well. So, you know, there are times when I'm really down and can call up Max and he's, he can tell me, he can give me perspective. And then other times when he's, you know, has no perspective and he can call me up. So there's sowing and reaping in that as well. Um, interdependent people assist others by constantly pointing them toward Jesus for salvation that they need. But often that's away from themselves. So don't look to me. We know who has what you need, you know. Um, interdependent people identify with Jesus more than their wounds, and they go to him for healing before addressing the cause. And the way that they go to that cause is through forgiveness. That's really important to bear in mind. Interdependence has a... Interdependent people have strong identity and affirmation of the goodness and uniqueness both of themselves and of other people. So they're able to embrace identity as a gift from God given to all and therefore able to appreciate um, able to appreciate others due to the conviction that everyone is designed by God in his image. So you celebrate the uniqueness of every person because when doing that, you're celebrating God. And there's no hesitation about that because you yourself know that you are part of that good design. You also carry the thumbprint of God. There's no insecurity in that. So interdependent people know themselves and they have a motive to form mutually strengthening bonds of friendship via honest communication. They're motivated because the great goal is to carry the reputation of Christ well in the world. And interdependence tends, tends to lead towards thankfulness, pretty much across the board, and celebration. So in short, interdependent people invest because they have been ultimately invested in. Independent people keep their accounts closed because they trust no one but themselves and they fear lack. 
So do codependent people. They're codependent and they, because they fear lack, but they make only withdrawals, either from themselves or from other people. So there's not a mutual in and out flow. But I want to return again to interdependence. People who invest because they know they've been ultimately invested in. And they trust that when they give, they'll be filled up. Again and again and again and again. But an interdependent person also knows boundaries and their humanity. And this comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who's able to tell you, this far and maybe no further. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about this togetherness thing again. It's this fellowship thing. Um, koinonia, the original word, a Greek word for fellowship, yes, classes, um, <clears throat> actually means to share. And the question is, what do we share? And you can actually look to Acts for a lot of this kind of insight. Acts 21 is kind of this interesting travel log of Paul, right when he was deciding to go to Rome. And at that point in his life, he started really needing people. The church started galvanizing around him. Fellowship started thickening around him because he was, well, he was pivotal to the growth of the church, but he was also going through a lot of trials. So what we share is, I'm just going to go through a list. We share joy, suffering, things, time, emotions, decisions. We share danger. We share truth and faith. And all of this, I mean, you can see this played out really well in Acts. Um, let's talk about suffering for a minute, though. This idea of, like, sometimes the body, there's illness in it, like, we get wounded or something happens that's really awful. Go to the Sermon on the Mount, say John 6. And this is Jesus's kind of, he did, a, he did this a couple times where it's basically like anti-church growth sermons where he says, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak, blessed are the, you know, because of you. Well, here's the other thing. He says that you're blessed right in the middle of that suffering. He doesn't say later when it's gone. He says right there in the middle of it. And if you think about times when you've suffered, it's not fun, but Christ is palpably close oftentimes in those moments. And in suffering, we can also provide that present tense blessing to people around us that are in the body. Like, you think about what the body does to create healing. It's intense. So there's, um, for instance, if a woman's pregnant, this isn't even healing, just to produce growth. If a woman's pregnant and she's malnourished, there's a hormone that's released that basically will siphon off all of her nutrition into the fetus. The body has priorities. <laughs> and when we're wounded, that wound becomes priority. The white blood cells go you know, through the roof. The whole body protects the wounding. Um, and the kinds of insane things biologically that go on are mind-boggling. So what I'm trying to say is that in the body of Christ, 
woundedness and suffering is actually sacred, and it's part of our responsibility to circle around it, to do what it takes to heal. Um, we share things. Hospitality is really important, and in wounding, of course, we're sharing things as well. Um, time. Friendship is a voluntary cost. I mean, you think about family. If you have a kid and they're like screaming, and <laughs> I mean, there's no, I mean, that's, you, you got to deal with it. You got to deal with it, you know. You made a couple decisions back there, and now you got the kid. So you got to deal with it. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of other kind of like loves in the world are very demanding. The love of friendship and spiritual friendship is voluntary. Like you can, I mean, you can say, no, I don't think I'm going to go over to so-and-so's house today and like have coffee with them. And, it, and I don't think, you know, like they'd blame you much, you know, but investing time into people is really a voluntary um, decision. Um, and then emotion, feelings, really important. Don't shut down. Um, you can see that in Acts a lot, like, Paul, at this one moment, when he knows he has to go to Rome, the church is like around him is devastated and trying to persuade him not to go. And he's weeping, and he says, why are you trying to break my heart? I know I have to go. I have to go. And that was just this sweet communion of, like, we recognize what you have to do with your life, but it hurts us, and I know that you're, it's hurting you, too. And there, was, there was real fellowship in that, not just coffee hour. Real fellowship. Um, decisions and consequences. Um, the, sometimes we need help making decisions. And when someone says to us, I'm going to bear the consequences with you voluntarily out of my, the strength of my friendship with you, is there anything quite as encouraging as that? Do you think about Paul going to Rome? John disagreed with him about going. But guess who went with him anyway when he did go? He went with him. And you think about this. So many of our friendships in the world are about us. <laughs> Either they flatter our ego or they do something for us or, or, or this friend really needs us and they're always listening to us and like making us feel good. How often do we like go the distance with someone and it's not going to reward us at all? Not in the least. In fact, it might endanger us. And there's examples of that all over in the early church. So, basically the final element is that we share, it's not the final, but it's one of them, is faith. So this idea um, of exhorting one another, and it's in Hebrew 3.13, Hebrews 3.13. Um, basically, that word also means to preach to each other. So we need the kinds of friendships where there's the openness and vulnerability to not only be honest and transparent, but to receive another person's insight and what God is saying to them about your situation. Um, and, you know, it can be, of course, done gently and well, and it should be, but this idea of being open to certain people in our life that we trust, that they have the right preach at us. <laughs> go ahead, preach at me. I actually say that to my mom a lot, you know, I'm like, go ahead, 
do it. And she does. She doesn't hesitate. <clears throat> okay. Now, all of this is very grand and wonderful. And I'm getting close to the end, and I, I probably should be. Okay. Where does the power for all of this come? Because if you think about it, all of this is extremely counterintuitive to our selfish nature. I mean, left to our own devices, we're always going to make choices that are good for us and who cares about our neighbor. So, I mean, there's this little phrase that came to me years and years ago. It's just so true. Love is actually not natural. It's supernatural. Love is not natural. It's supernatural. Every time, something in us needs to be conquered in order to really love. So, where does the power for that come from? There are two things that are really the powerhouses of being able to live this way. A right understanding of sin. <laughs> going to love that. And then humility and mercy combined. Actually, humility comes from a right understanding of sin. Let's put those two together. And then mercy. Okay. So... Before, when I was talking about codependence and independence and all that kind of stuff, the real definition of sin is trying to make salvation for ourselves. Not looking to Jesus. Okay? So, some people do that by seeking happiness or salvation by completely ignoring the rules, just going their own way. You know, and it's really obvious to us. We can say, oh yeah, well, you're a sinner, right? You murdered your parents because <laughs> it was convenient. You wanted your allowance. <laughs> I don't know. Example, extreme, sorry. <laughs> other things. We could think of other things that are less ridiculous. So that's easy to point to, but there's also a religious version of this, trying to forge your own salvation. And that comes from basically trying to put God in your debt. <laughs> you, tr you go by all the rules, and the Pharisees did this. You know, you measure out your spices, you do everything precisely, and you are so good and so holy that God has to do what you want him to do. That is you trying to save yourself. Not throwing yourself at the feet of Jesus and saying, I can't do this at all. I need you. So sin, by definition, is trying to forge your own salvation. And we can be very creative about our, you know, self-deception as to how we do that. But ultimately, that's what sin is. So because we are all guilty of that, come on, we are. When we understand what that really is, every single one of us has to fall in the category of a sinner. So there, that creates humility. That means we're all on the same playing field. We're all level, the eye, the ear, the foot, the bowel, the eyelash. Every single one of us, we're all the same. Humble, humble, humble. And what's amazing about that being in that posture is that then God's mercy lifts us up and tells us what our identity is. And in gratefulness, we take it up with alacrity. We are energetic about that because we've, experienced, we've witnessed our own nature and it's very disappointing. But when God gives us his nature and gives us a job in the body, that's very exciting. So, transformed by these realities and the, having these powerhouses in our spirit, like these recognitions that sinfulness is common and creates humility in us, 
and that mercy is the gift of God, then togetherness is actually possible. And there's this case study of forgiveness, for instance, because we all have to forgive each other. And unforgiveness is one of the ways that we can be, keep that separation from each other and keep from unity. And forgiveness can only happen, Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, love and do good. Now, the first work to forgiveness is inner. Jesus says, you have to pray for your enemies, and your enemies can be within the body of Christ. Sometimes the most painful situations are within the body of Christ. And this idea of praying for your enemies is you are siphoning away all ill will by asking the Holy Spirit to hover over the chaos and the pain and for him to remind you that he went through all of that and worse to show you the way through. And you have to like just let through praying for your enemies, pray, pray, pray. At first it's artificial, very difficult, and the Holy Spirit performs this miracle. And all of your ill will and your spite and your entitlement starts to wash away. Because we feel entitled to anger. And only in that position of finally letting go of all that ill will and actually desiring the flourishing of your enemies. Only then, if that person is hurting themselves in their sin. Only then. Are you qualified to confront them in love? And that is one of the only ways to create unity. Because we will hurt each other. Promise. Marislav Wolf said that forgiveness flounders when we exclude others from the family of humanity and when we exclude ourselves from the family of sinners. And all of this is done under the headship of Christ. So let's go through some slides. Let's see, I don't remember what I have here. Next. Oh, more blood. The cells. Beautiful. White blood cell platelets. Next. Togetherness, this idea of exchanging oxygen. Should have done this earlier. Next. Next. We have to cooperate in order to like even do these movements with our fingers. The number of muscles required is crazy, so we need this unity. Next. Interlocking. Next. So from the inside out, this idea even of living from the inside out, um, having healthy internal relations with one another, meaning that we can like be carrying Christ's reputation well in the world, is all done under the headship of Christ. So that's the next slide. We tend to think of headship as only your brain, where all the messages come out and all that kind of stuff. But actually, the word for headship has more to do with source and authority. Next slide. We're so used to authority meaning something um, self-aggrandizing, something self-important, something that is meant to bludgeon down your freedom. And a lot of us really struggle with that word, authority. But if you think about Jesus, the way that he used his authority was always to create freedom and to serve. 
Next slide. Instead of to build his kingdom in worldly terms, he gave up his authority, laid it down, so that we could have the possibility of life. That's how he used his authority, not to conquer kingdoms, rule armies. He used his authority to give us life. And if you think about that, the whole purpose of a body, life, life, life. So the authority of Jesus is not something to be afraid of. Next slide. The authority of Jesus looks more like this. (laughs) And then, in the end, that authority will put him on a throne. The next slide. But that throne will be a reminder also of the cross. So, I actually want to um, spend some time praying about this because the gospel, the gospel is not head knowledge. The gospel is not a series of bullet points or coming on Sunday morning and hearing someone lay out truths. The gospel is experienced. The gospel living in you is change that's exper- that you experience through Christ. Miracles in your own inner self. That's the gospel lived out. And the gospel lived out in the world because you have been made new. Um, Annie Dillard is one of my favorite authors, and she actually says that, you know, when we go to church, if we really expect to encounter the gospel and the Holy Spirit and the God of the universe, we should probably bring our crash helmets because that's going to be intense. (laughs) And I'm afraid that sometimes we get way too relaxed. This is the living God. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit that's in you and that's in me would create contact points with what I've said. The Holy Spirit knows how to put a finger on something in you and say this, let's look at this. And the sweet authority of Jesus can come into your life and create order. And the gospel can be experienced. So I want to pray for us and, and I'd I'd like you to join me. Father, maybe we should take off our crash helmets and just let you batter us in the best ways. You are here in this room right now. You are alive and present, and you are indwelling every single spirit that's here. You cherish us. We are part of your body, and no one scorns their own body. There is no one here in this room that is condemned. You cherish us. Though we are all sinners, every last one, you have died to bring us near to you. You have given everything. We have more than your attention. We have your power. We have your life. We have your commitment. You are faithful when we are faithless. Father, would you come in each person right now? And would you gently put your finger on anywhere 
where we have been codependent, where we have not joyfully taken up the identity that you've given us, where we have envied other people, or where we have given ourselves to such an extent that we're trying to be the salvation of someone else. Father, if any of this is resonating in anyone right now, I pray your mercy, 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 mercy. I pray that you would speak into them the goodness of their identity, that they are intended to function in the beautiful body of Christ, that they have something to bring that they alone can bring. It is valuable. In fact, it is essential to your life now, here, in this culture, in this moment, in this place, in this room, in their lifetime, this person, every single one of us, is caught up in the life of Christ. And our identity is part of that. Father, for any of us that have leaned back in a way, have chosen independence, have said, I don't need you, I don't need you people, you just hurt me. Father, I pray your grace, 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 over that inner disposition right now. And I pray that you would beckon this part of us back into yourself. And Father, I pray for the great vision of interdependence, of weaving into one another and giving good gifts to one another that that great vision would inspire and motivate us to carry your reputation in this world with such beauty and grace and otherness that it becomes insanely attractive to the world around us. Fill us up. Make us full of life. Make us whole so that we can be your body on earth as it is intended to be in heaven. In Jesus' name.